Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's Cronus Gaming Classics, interviews, and more. I'm Nico, and you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And you can check the show out at X'sForPodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter. Later on this episode, you're going to hear more of the amazing coverage that you come to X's for Podcast for, but we're going to kick things off with a once-in-a-lifetime interview. A big special thanks to Nathan for working so hard to make this happen. Couldn't have done it without you, buddy, and I'm so excited to bring this content. We've been covering the Demon Days story playing out at Marvel for the last 18 months with the opportunity to take a look at nearly every tale told in that universe, as well as talk with a number of the creators. We hadn't yet taken a look at two of the side stories, the prelude originally published in King and Black number four, or the Electra story published in Electra Black, White, and Blood number four, the only story from that series we hadn't taken a look at yet. We also hadn't had a chance to talk with series creator Peach Momoko, and this episode we're going to remedy both of those things. We're going to kick off with a discussion with Yo and Peach Momoko, Yo being Peach's manager, translator, husband, and such an amazing person to have an interview with, and Peach herself, and the team gets to sit down, ask her about process, her stories, tell her how much her tales mean to us, and more. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for all of us, and we couldn't be more grateful to Yo and Peach for their time, as well as to Nathan for setting it all up. After that we're going to have more of the same coverage you look for so don't forget to stick around but first up enjoy the x-pax interview with peach momoko hey everybody welcome to an extra special segment of x's for podcast where we have some amazingly special guests with us but first introduce the cast that's with us i'm nathan and you can find me online at twitter at dazzler aoa that's like dazzler in the age of apocalypse hey everybody i'm nico and you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t I-O-N. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And with us, we have some special guests. So my name is Yo. Uh, what is my name is Peach Momoko. As you know, Peach Momoko is the uh, artist for Demon Days and Demon Wars and other covers. And I am Yo, Peach's husband, manager, and translator. Well, we are are very very happy to have you both here with us i can't say how excited we've been to have the chance to talk to both of you whenever i see one of peach's covers at a store i always buy that sometimes i'll pick up books i don't even usually get because of the beautiful covers i see i know demon days and demon wars is such a beautiful amazing story it's touched a lot of our crew in some really amazing ways and we all love it <laughs> yes a close friend of mine will also pick up a comic just because it has a peach momoko cover that is the strength of the art. We have people who will come on and do coverage specifically if the name Peach Momo 
Coco appears on the book. Like, it's amazing. This is incredible. Thank you. Like, Peach Momoko no, ano, hyoshi, ano, dake no ryu de kao shi, demon de demon was daisi ya shi, mo, naka, maori mo sui mori agate de, soi de mo, koe desu. Peach is also happy to hear. Everyone is happy with her covers too, so thank you very much. Gobsmacked by just how beautiful and unique and amazing each and every cover is. I personally am just in love with Demon Days and Demon Wars is a book. It's one of my favorite books that have come out in the last few years. I've got to ask, what drew Peach to comics as a genre in general? Were there any particular books that she grew up reading? I mean, did she have a favorite comic series? Just so everyone knows, we already received some of the questionnaires from Nathan. So I will be answering pretty much for Peach. Just so we don't have a translating bouncing back and forth to take up too much space of your、uh, podcast time. So that's why I'll be answering, not Peach. But this is Peach's words with my voice. So Peach went into the comic genre not really because she's always been into mangas or comics. She's always been really fascinated by art in general. And when she was little, she grew up with mostly watching anime instead of reading. And she just loved those visuals. Of anime that led to her drawing, that just kind of led to her going to school for character design. She really just wanted to be a part of this anime or video game, the moving part, the artwork that moves. But eventually, she kind of went into the comic world. She really didn't have a specific thing that drew her into comics. I'm glad that she got drawn into it because I think her work and her vision on it, especially from coming outside of, you know, like a specific love for comics, really has elevated the genre. Thank you. I wanted to ask a lot of artists have, you know, different processes for getting in the mood with mood boards or looking at different pictures to get a vibe going. But I wanted to ask, what is Peach's process to get in the mood to create? Do you listen to music while you work? If so, any kind in particular? So, Peach, before she starts painting basically or creating, her process is pretty much clean the house. I clean the house with her. Like, we both basically just reset her studio, water the plants, everything that makes her kind of more happy about her environment. And after that, it just depends on her mood. But sometimes she'll watch documentary or let a documentary film play on the background. Sometimes she listens to music, but a lot of that is very important for her. And she doesn't just choose the music that she likes to listen to usually. It just, for her, it depends on what she She's painting. If it's something more happy, cute covers, she tends to listen to more upbeat musics. And if it's more darker, sad, or horror vibe covers or interiors, she usually listens to more darker music or a lot of the time watches documentaries that's very, in a way, depressing, just so she gets into that mood as well with the environment.、Mm, yeah, I can really relate to that. That's very cool. Thank you.、Mm-hmm. And right now, she likes to listen to a Japanese music band called Plenty. <laughs> Plenty. They're already、uh, broken up, but Peach likes to listen to them.、Hmm, I'll have to check them out. Something when I was doing a little bit of research, I read that Hayao Miyazaki was one of your inspirations artistically. And I wanted to know what about those films inspires you artistically? And if you have one that is your favorite. She grew up with watching a lot of, not just Hayao Miyazaki, but also、uh, Takaha- Isao Takahata, the other main director for Ghibli. But she really 
Ghibli grew up watching a lot of Ghibli films. She actually told me last night when we were kind of going through the interview questions, the Ghibli film that really kind of like inspired her and made her really interested in the whole genre, not just by a fan, but to be more a part of it was um, when she was in middle school, she was watching Princess Mononoke and the scene where a uh, son sucks the blood out of the big wolf and she wipes her mouth and there's the blood streak across her face. That scene, I think was very, for her, it was really memorable and you don't really see too much anime, especially when she's in middle school, you know, you can't really watch too much of the hardcore adult anime. I'm not pornographic, but like more grotesque anime. Like more mature themes, yeah. More mature, yes. So for her, that scene was like an eye-opener. Like she told me that you can really express something with that short amount of time, that super strong message. And then that's when she really got interested and started to research more and more, not just Princess Mononoke, but like the whole entire genre. That's amazing. Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite ones. My personal favorite is Hell's Moving Castle. That's one of the one that was coming out when I was growing up. So that one holds a very special place in my heart. But Princess Mononoke is a very powerful movie that has a lot of beautiful animation that I think really stands out. She also enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle a lot too. Amazing. Amazing. One of my favorite books that have come out recently, Demon Days and Demon Wars series. What has been Peach's favorite part about creating the series as a whole? I know I've loved the combination of these classic core Marvel characters combined with traditional Japanese folklore characters. Also, Mariko, her version is a much more well-established and nuanced character on her own than she's allowed to be in the mainstream Marvel continuity. A character who unfortunately has been primarily seen written by men mainly in connection to Wolverine as a character with no agency of her own. You know, what was the inspiration to use Mariko as the main character instead of a more well-known character? So let me ask Peach that directly. Demon Days ああ、デモンデイズ作るとき何に決まったのかとか、マリコ選んだ理由とかなんかそういうのあったら教えてくれますかっていう。ああ、デモンデイズ作る楽しかったのは、キャラクターデザインのキャラクターデザインがすごい
か、うん、ありがとう。私、名前も気に入ってて、ローガンって感じで。ローガンって、うまいことやったなとか、いつも思う。名前とキャラクターのチョイス。So, she says, thank you. Most people probably don't know it, but、um, she also likes the name Logan.、Um, not because of Logan, the real Logan name, but if you in, I think, the big TPB book, it has a, and the character design part, you might see it. Logan, she made up a name with the kanji, the Japanese Chinese letters. Logan is,、uh, Lo is wolf, and Gan is like circle. And a lot of time in Japan, you have a lot of the something circle as names. So it's like wolf circle, so Lo Gan. So it actually has a Japanese name that just pronounces exactly the same as Logan with the meaning of a wolf. She didn't want to break Mariko and Logan's relationship, not as a love relationship, but like a partner relationship, but just a completely different, you know, not a male and female relationship, but a, a companion pet or not a pet, but guardian animal and her. I like that representation of that relationship because then it's still somebody who's important because those are important relationships, but it's not, like you said, the, the overpowering like love story. Yeah, Logan already takes up too much space in most Mariko stories. It's nice to have him sidelined, like. Yuri talked a little bit about Studio Ghibli and Princess Mononoke, but when it comes to Demon Days and Demon Wars with all the yokai that are included, I was wondering if there w a s any horror media, maybe movies or anime, that you were drawing from for a lot of that, or if the yokai were more something that you grew up with. そういうなんかあのインスパイアされた作品ってあるのかホラーかあれわかんないけど妖怪とか日本昔話だねそうだよねを小学校の毎週土曜日に毎朝見ててそのアニメも10分だけどめちゃくちゃ好きでで大体不気味だったりする話が多いからそういうのとかもあの体に入ってると思うなんかそれを自分で書き書いてみたいっていうのもあったしなんかそういう妖怪とかの参考日本の参考It wasn't really, she's not exactly、um, a horror inspired to make the Demon Days series. When she was in lower elementary,
elementary school, every Saturday, she was watching a 10-minute cartoon called the um, Nihon Mukashi Banashi, which means Jap Japan folktale. And within those folktales, there was a lot of darker, kind of scary stories as well. And she basically watched this cartoon every Saturday for as long as she remembers. And she still does watch these. Not It's uh, not new ones because they don't, I don't know if they make them anymore. She still sometimes watches them. I mean, it's just, she just says it's just in her blood and she just loves these folk tales that tells not just a, like a story but also like how to live a life or why this is happening in this area like everything has a reason especially in Japan it's a very spiritual country so everything kind of has a reason and she just loves that storytelling she likes to she's always been wanting to do a little Japanese folktale story and Marvel was just a kind of a interesting perfect fit that just kind of worked yeah I'm very grateful that it does work because it's turned into something really magical that builds its own little corner of the Marvel universe to hang out in on its own. And it's just, it's a really special thing. Thank you. And I love how many special little parts have come together to make this incredible Peach Momoko verse. Like, I loved the Electra story. That meant so much to me as a huge Electra fan. And it makes me realize that before Demon Days, almost all of the representation of Japanese legend and folklore came from American creators who were just inspired by things they'd read. And I really wanted to know what it was like working with a character like Electra, who has had so many American creator influences on the Japanese folklore. Peach really actually just visually liked Electra a lot from start before she even knew who Electra was. She loves Electra's like, I don't know what they're called, strings or fabrics that just kind of can be navigated in the wind. Just very mm. flowy kind of character. Yeah. Very simple. And Peach always loves characters with luscious big hair for her it's more she can play around with it more. but she's always been drawn towards the character design she didn't even know it was a japanese or asian related character at all she didn't know it was mainly created by american creators for her like in comics mangas animes she doesn't really care about who makes them as long as it looks great story's fun everything's fun then she's happy and she will be interested in watching it or reading it or drawing it she didn't really think anything about American creators creating Japanese influenced character is anything. So that's such an amazing pureness of working with the character, and that's such an incredible perspective. Thank you. Well, she just enjoys for the Demon Days Electra story, she enjoyed redesigning it into her world and into a, I guess, as you saw, the book, a very Japanese black and white samurai inspired film. So, I mean, she just likes to take part of it and tell it in her eyes. For her, any country doesn't matter. It's just she's happy to be joined in the family. 
Amazing. Yeah. Something that's really coming across in this interview, but also in Peach's work in the United States is just like what a pure visual stylist you are, Peach. Something that I think about a lot with that is a lot of the comic covers that you create convey to me a sense of like wonder of something like magical in the mundane. And I was wondering if like, is there an expression that you try to get across most often with your covers? Is there some kind of emotional weight that to you is emblematic of the of the characters you work with or does that depend on what character you're working with so emotions and whatnot peach does have a small theme she works on um it, do, it does definitely depend on the character or the story sometimes but a lot of her main themes that she works with is the young adolescent kids almost like they don't know where they belong or they're looking forward where they belong it's just that she's always interested and always loves these stories where these kids these characters aren't complete yet like there's always something missing obviously in demon days mariko is looking for who she really is what she is doing in this like as a student she's she doesn't feel she fits the class in the home she's always kind of missing where she is and then she finds out she's a half oni uh she has a sister ogin that's after her she's just always looking for the answer and demon wars is also she's looking for where she belongs as well is it the human world is it the ikai the uh, yokai world she's always looking for something and if you really look back into peach's older works her interiors um like the heavy metal magazine she she did about three short stories. And the first one was a salaryman who wants a new life. So he goes to a shaman. And then so he's searching for where he belongs in the world as well. Toko, also heavy metal, is a, a high school girl that commits suicide. Committing suicide in school kids is always a theme with they don't have a place in the world. So they decide to take their lives. So Peach has always... I think emotionally has a connection towards where do you belong is her main concept and message that she always just fa gets fascinated with. And it's not an easy question for a lot of people. So, which I don't know if possibly Peach doesn't know where she belongs to sometimes, but I think that's one of her main theme that Peach works with. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, all of us need to at various points in our life over and over reassess where we belong or whether we're in the place that we think we should be and i think that's why demon wars and demon days really resonate so fantastically with so many people is that that theme really comes across strongly yeah i often don't know where i am something i wanted to know because looking into the different kind of places that peach's art has been showcased i saw that there were like a bunch of different art galleries and magazines and I wanted to know what the similarities and differences were for creating art for art shows, galleries, magazines versus creating it for comic books. For Peach, she said there really isn't too much of a difference. The only difference for Peach is if it's a art gallery and if it's a solo show that there's no theme or she picks her own theme. So she has no, I guess, creative, I wouldn't say censorship, but I guess a slight censoring comic books or magazines. She has to think about the readers a bit so she can't go too far into being too gory or unless it's for a gore magazine or whatnot for marvel obviously we can't go too gory and art shows she has to still curate for who's coming to see it or what type of gallery it is so she there's a little bit of that but for the most part art galleries 
if it's a solo show, she can really just go all out more expressive. But creativity wise, she says it's about the same weight. But she also, especially with the comic books, art galleries, magazines, and interior, one of her favorite artists, his name is Atsushi Kaneko. He, in an interview, he was saying that he's a comic book manga artist, but um, every page he's careful that you can cut the panel or cut the page and still frame it. So it's almost like each page of a comic book shouldn't be a filler or shouldn't be something that just is for reading. In an interview, he said like there had to be art. Like each page has to be beautiful. So she takes his words and puts it into her own, I guess, professional standard as well. So she's very careful about when she paints comic book pages um, that it's not just a reading material, but fans could cut and paste panels, pages, and frame it and still look like a piece of art. あの、イラストレーターとしてもなんかまとまりのある絵を描く描く描く方だから、多分そういう発想がね、コミックでもそういう発想が生まれるんだと思う。で、それすごいいい向き合い方だなと思って、私もイラストレーターでやってたからやって
be part of the upcoming Miracle Man, you know, new beginning as Miracle Man re-enters publication. So we actually didn't know too much about Miracle Man. Marvel just sent us an email and sent us a lot of PDF of the comic books, as well, I guess the original Miracle Man books. And then we looked through it, and but we wanted to make sure that uh, Marvel wanted a Demon Days or Demon Wars version Miracle Man and not a Miracle Man drawn and painted by Peach Momoko. And they were very straightforward and they wanted a Demon Days version. So she didn't think it was that, I guess, a crazy thing doing a Miracle Man story. Oh, but it is. It's so crazy. It's so amazing. I can't even tell you. It's so cool. <laughs> Mother, you, you haven't read it though yet, right? No, it is not out yet. It is. I am I am like counting down the days till it comes out. Like it's such a big thing. There hasn't been new Miracle Man since the early 90s with the exception of one story in 20 years. This is such a big thing for Miracle Man fans and Peach getting to be part of it is such an incredible moment for a fan. So that's why it was a big deal of Marvel releasing this information then with Miracleman that it was a special book. Mm. Not to have too much high hopes for you guys. Um, her version of Miracle Man is very different. <laughs> so she's a bit antsy as well as a bit scared of how people will see it just because now now we know how important or this event is with Miracle Man coming up. So she, because she really, really, really changed it. <laughs> well, if it puts your mind at ease, the original character was sort of a silly generic superhero and the character became very popular in the 80s when he was reimagined in a very intense cerebral dark place so the heart of Miracle Man is reinvention from a new perspective and if that's what Peach did then that is the heart of what makes Miracle Man a powerful character interesting メラクルマンは。だからあのもしピーチがあのその作り直しのストーリーをしてるんだったらもうそれはもうミラクルマンのコアなところを取ってるから大丈夫だよ。めっちゃ嬉しいね、その言葉は。いい情報でした。すごい
as well as well, some of her more emotional things. Like she has a theme of stars and ocean, which is one of her favorite themes and images of like stars, moons, and the ocean. Those pieces that randomly pops up, usually she posts maybe one or two a week, unless there's a, a bunch of new covers coming out. It has a lot of her more emotions. Like when she is stuck from painting covers and she needed to, she wants to blow the steam off a little bit, or when she's a bit depressed when she feels kind of her feelings and emotions are kind of away from where it's supposed to be sometimes she stops working and then starts painting these pieces usually happens during like 4 or 5 a.m so you can really see her true her in these social media accounts versus the stuff that's been published but if you kind of connect those two you'll actually see resemblance of those like even like the spider woman covers or some of even those more Marvel covers has elements of those where Peach is kind of emotionally depressed in the covers. So you can kind of connect those two, which might make it even funner. I don't know if you can say emotion and fun is a good combination, but you know, as a viewer, it might be kind of interesting to see some covers you can kind of tell Peach. Now, I wouldn't say struggling, but she was like mentally in a different place. I have a question just for my crew that I want to ask. Do you have a personal like favorite each variant cover my personal favorite one is one that was recently of like mystique and destiny and it was just so beautifully done kind of mystique to destiny oh so she really loved painting those two together as well just because of their relationship is so emotionally amazing so she just loved painting those two. So she says she's happy you like that cover. The emotional connection between the two characters really shone through on that. So mm, beautiful. There's a Devil's Reign variant of Electra that captures, I mean, of all of the beautiful Electra work you've done, and not to be so focused on Electra, but of <laughs> all of the beautiful Electra work there is, there is this Devil's Reign variant that captures the quiet sadness of, of Electra's eyes better than just about any image I can imagine and it really expressed to me uh, that when Peach dials into a character she imagines a world behind that character's eyes and that, that really it made the image feel so alive and it's just this simple cover of Electra for Devil's Reign but it says so much. Do you know which Devil's Reign? Is it the one with Electra standing or is it the one with yes. Electra's eyes bleeding? <laughs> it's the standing one. Ah, <laughs> My favorite beach cover of all time leaps immediately to mind, and it's just the one with Mystique in a fetal position on the ground and Destiny holding her head, looming over her with her big head. Uh, that image is always stuck in my head. It's so tender and so beautiful. Inferno number two, the Emma Frost cover, it's just so like hauntingly beautiful to me. Just like er everything about it, I think just works so much for the characterization of Emma Frost. And I really just think it's such a beautiful, like just piece of art. Um, and the second one is a friend of mine recently gifted me the new Marvel tabletop RPG game. And it has the Scarlet Witch drawn by Peach. It just made me so happy seeing it because I, I was so surprised and I wasn't expecting it. And it was just a beautiful picture of Wanda and like that added dice just make it that much cooler and like special to me. 
Thank you. Thank you. She's happy to hear that too. She's not used to people directly telling which cover she likes, so she's a little bit embarrassed right now. Oh no, I'm sorry. We love them all. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely crazy how many I could name off the top of my head, and we could go on like this forever, but we won't. Thank you. To have become so prolific so quickly is so amazing. It feels like it's just been such an incredible thing that everywhere we look, there is this incredible style of art. And when art is drawn in like very different ways, it allows a sort of texture, a, a humanity to sort of build on the idea of the character. It's something that you see when you see someone in different lights for real. But, you know, it's, it's a character on paper and just having... Having this chance to see the characters illustrated from such a new perspective gives them new life for people who have read them forever, and it's so special. なんかずっと読んできてたキャラクターだから。She's always happy to hear these voices of people that likes her style, especially since it's like you said, like these characters have been around for ages. So she's happy to hear that she's able to bring a new, even if it's a small light, a new light. So it, it makes her feel more confident and more happy to keep doing what she's doing. I know you guys have New York Comic Con coming up. Is there anything you're really excited to do at either the event itself or, you know, just like, are you excited to meet with the fans? Are, are there any cool panels coming up or, or anything like that? It's going to be our first show since COVID happened. So we haven't done international shows for about three years now so she's very excited she's very excited to just do the show and meet the fans everyone says that's going to be a big line and we have no clue how busy we're going to be of course we want it to be busy but we're also a bit scared if it's going to be busy or if it's not going to be busy but she's just excited to be able to meet the fans to share all the experience with everyone but more the show is the thing that she's very excited she always enjoys the food any food that we can't get in japan she's always interested seeing all of our artist friends that we haven't seen for more than three years is also another excitement for peach but definitely just the whole convention vibe is going to be that's really pumping her adrenaline right now y'all ever go to a chicago one I'll, I'll definitely be in line with my copy of one of my favorite covers whenever i go to a convention i know it's an amazing experience to meet my favorite artists the creators that we all look up to and a lot of us as adults still keep the love for the genre and we love seeing especially artists who come in and you know sort of turn maybe not turn the genre on its head but you know help present a new way of looking at it thank you yeah i mean it looks like even japan is starting to open up more and more with travels 
in and out will be easier. So hopefully this year, international show will just be New York Comic Con. But next year and the following year, hopefully we can kind of not do, we obviously can't do too many just because of the time restraints. And traveling just takes up too much energy if you're flying like 14 hours. Hopefully we can start doing more shows, Not obviously not just New York Comic Con, but like Chicago you're mentioning, I think is a C2E2. Yes. We also want to do Seattle or Portland, Oregon. Just because Portland, Oregon, Peach lived there for three years with me. So we want to go back to Portland a little bit and do their show and just kind of walk around the city. But more, you know, just not just America, but like Europe, Canada, anywhere, South Africa. All those shows has started to contact us. Obviously, we haven't been able to just because of the travel restraints. Is Japan just recently started to let people out easier. It's going to be much more easier to go into Japan now from October 11. So I think that will pretty much open up Japan entirely for in and out. So hopefully next year or the following year, we can do at least three to four shows a year. But it, obviously it depends how busy we are. Peach is just excited to go to other countries, other cities. And she's always, for signatures, she's, she always does free signatures. We don't like to charge for signatures. The artist that does, you know, that's great. But Peach, I think it's like a manga, Japanese artist mindset. But um, Peach always tells me that she will never charge for a signature. So she's just very excited to go to any shows and just sign as many books as possible. That's great news because so. I've got about 30 single issues to bring next time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't actually do that. No, you can. We just ask people 10 books per line and then you just have to reline up or come the next day and get another 10 books. We just don't want someone bringing 100 or 200 books at once and making everyone wait 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> I would not want to be rude or hold up the line or exploit your generosity at all, but thank you for letting me know. I fear the line where everybody can bring 100 books. This was just such an incredible honor. I am so grateful for this chance to get to communicate in a way that I feel like I normally wouldn't. This was a really eye-opening experience, and the chance to hear about process is really important to me as a fan and as a fellow creator and this was really rewarding thank you both for this conversation it was such an incredible way to like experience something i love so much using your precious time for Peach and allowing us to be on your show. So thank you very much. So if any of you guys are at any shows that Peach is at, just please feel free to talk to us. I have professional badges for New York, so you guys just might see me at New York. That's wonderful. If you're ever out Chicago way, I'll come up and say hi. Okay. She also like she did C2E2 once, so she wants to go back again. Yes, we'd be delighted to have you. I speak for all of C2E2 when I say that. Yeah, to echo what Nico said, I just want to thank all of you guys for your time and for coming on. It has been an honor and a pleasure, and I can't tell you how how 
often Steve and I will be at the comic store and, you know, somebody will see a peach cover and they'll just go, oh my gosh, I got to get the peach cover. Just know out there, there's people loving and talking so, you know, beautifully about the work that she does. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and what an unbelievable thing to be a part of. I can't even tell you how much it meant to me, and we hope you enjoyed just as much as we enjoyed making it. And one of the things that struck me over and over again as we were talking with Yo and Peach was how many of the things Peach is creating or interacting with that have for so long been a part of our fandom here on X's for Podcast. Now, of course, the show began four years ago, taking a look at 1970s X-Men comics and expanding from there to take a look at things like Defenders and Champions, but once the show jumped forward, we tried to stay with just the X line, but our love of all things Marvel sort of seeped in, but the seeds that are running around the Marvel Universe right now and our coverage thereof have ties so far back and through so many episodes, and so much of it came up in that last interview. Now, of course, a 400-episode back library can be really overwhelming to take a look at, but in order to make it easier, if people were looking to find out more information about some of the topics that came up in the last segment with Yo and Peach, we've tried to make it a little bit easier. Kicking things off is our coverage of Demon Days here on X's for Podcast, and the things I'm talking about right now, we've attached images that lay this information out to make it easier to find and listen back. Now, the first one that's on that image list that I'm going to talk about is our first interview with Ariana Mar. That was back in February of 2021. She is such an incredible pleasure and truly helped us to understand lettering. Lettering is something that you don't realize how important it is. It's the way that the comic is able to communicate the exactitude of dialogue. Of course, the story, the art, it can play out the general narrative, but so frequently it takes the inflections of words and the way they're presented to fully give you that scope. And without understanding the process of the letterer, the person laying it all out, I don't know that I would be able to do my job as a producer or editor on this show the same way, critically looking at comics and so much of that sources back to that first interview with Ariana Mar. We were also lucky enough to interview Zach Davison, and that came in August of last year in our 13th episode of our Mutants, Magic, and Marvel series, and he taught us so much about collaborative process, understanding creative involvement, and had so much advice for comics creators. As a comics creator myself, it's always so important to hear it, and it's always so exciting to get to sit in that discussion. And that's why we had Ariana Mar back in conversation with Tori Sheehan, two women creatives in comics, talking about what it means to create those books. And that was in September of 2021 in the 20th episode of Mutants, Magic, and Marvels. We've also taken a look at all of the proper issues of Demon Days with X-Men Demon Days in March of 2021, Demon Days Mariko in July of that same year, Cursed Web later on in September. And then in April of this past year, we took a look at Rising Storm and Blood 
feud and recently covered Iron Samurai of Demon Wars. If you're looking to find out more information about where you can find those episodes, don't forget to check the images attached to the Twitter post and give those a listen. Now, another topic that came up that was really amazing is Miracle Man. Now, Miracle Man and Marvel Man, this is a concept that's been coming up a lot, but I don't know that that many people are truly familiar with the idea of the character. Miracle Man, or originally Marvel Man, is Mickey Moran, and this character was created in 1954 by Michelangelo. The character was a bit more of a general 1950s superhero, and he had an entire family line. Young Marvel Man who was Dicky Dauntless and fun character. And then Kid Marvel Man, Johnny Bates. They were able to transform using magic words. Miracle Man could transform using the word Kimota, which is atomic backward. Kid Marvel Man could transform with Marvel Man. It was a really sort of of its time comic, very spirited, kind of magical. Some of the stories are definitely pretty silly. And the material eventually kept going till about early 60s and Unfortunately, over time, rights were not on the side of comics creators, and the character fell into disrepair until 1982, where eventually Alan Moore would reimagine the character, and due to some lawsuits and some difficulty securing name rights, the character became Miracle Man, having had been Marvel Man that whole time. This era is so incredible, and it's a very powerful narrative about responsibility and it's an unbelievable story that plays out across some number of titles and some one shots and Miracle Man 3D and it, it just gets to be too much so after a lengthy legal battle Marvel found themselves in the proper ownership rights now this also involves Todd McFarlane like Spider-Man Spawn Todd McFarlane the guy that makes all the action figures at one point he used his company to purchase Eclipse Comics's back catalog and evidently it was just like $25,000. You know, weird thing to brag about that you were able to benefit off of the heartbreak and lack of ownership of creative rights. But the only real problem with Todd McFarlane's claim of ownership is that multiple people had claim of ownership and it became very messy. One of the difficult things is that Todd McFarlane began using the character in issues of Hellspawn and, you know, then tried to get around it by changing the names of the characters just slightly from Miracle Man to Man of miracles and uh, it gets really overwhelming but ultimately Neil Gaiman was so interested in securing the rights to Miracle Man and making sure that it all works out that he formed Marvels and Miracles and the company worked very hard to get these characters back including Angela the character that now sits as Thor's sister and one of the things that's really funny is Neil Gaiman wrote Marvel 1602 to fund Marvels and Miracles and one of his dedications for it says to Todd for making it necessary and it is ultimately found out that all said and done Mick Angelo still owned Marvel Man from back in 1954 and Marvel did the right thing and purchased the character from Mick Angelo and there was a very touching Joe Casada meets Mick Angelo picture spread that Marvel really wanted you to check out and dig but I don't think anybody really cared when you hear oh this comic book character there's just a giant legal battle I don't think it makes people excited for that character's story, but Marvel used this as an opportunity to interpolate this character into their back catalog, but didn't really use them yet. Now, to that end, Marvel took the very complicated and difficult-to-navigate world of Miracle Man's canon and put it in easier-to-understand
understand volumes that we covered here on X's for Podcast way back in September of 2019 and October of 2019 in episodes 48 and 56, myself and husband, partner, best friend, producer, artist extraordinaire, Kevo, we took a look at Marvel Man, Family's Finest 1 through 6, and Marvel Man Primer in these two different episodes, and we really dug into the 1950s material that dominated the character. Something really important to consider is it's not just a character that was redefined in the 1980s by Alan Moore. It was a character redefined in the 1980s by Alan Moore, made powerful by the existing material that supported it. Gargunza wouldn't be as terrifying a threat if the idea of Gargunza wasn't in our minds for Alan Moore to reference from these earliest stories. Silly, short, dated, of course, but there's so much power behind them. We would then take a look at Marvel's representation of Miracle Man across four episodes. We took a look at Miracle Man 1 through 4 in January of 2020 in episode 85. We took a look at 5 through 10 of Marvel's Miracle Man in X's for Podcast 91 from February of 2020. In April of 2020, we took a look at the balance of the original issues, Miracle Man 11 through 16. But in that same month in X's for Podcast 109, we took a look at the Miracle Man Annual, which featured work by Grant Morrison. And I just, I don't fucking know what's more bizarre to me, a Grant Morrison comic at Marvel in the age of Joe Quesada or a Miracle Man story coming out. But either way, holy shit, I'm pretty grateful, right? It also saw my Pete Milligan, my precious Pete Milligan, who, you know, I love beyond words, and a new page of Marvel Man from Neil Gaiman. You know, I do that so often, Marvel Man, Miracle Man. I just kind of bounce back and forth between the names. So anytime that I, I get it slightly asynchronous, it's correct in the image. So anybody who's like, wait, but which, it, I promise it's right in the image because Kevo makes them and he does a good job, right? But Marvel 1000 had an incredible page by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham, and I can't wait to see how that fits into the upcoming scope of things. Of course, Miracle Man by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham 1 through 6 was released by Marvel before they had to stop publishing, and we took a look at that in May of 2020 in our 120th episode. After that, there really wasn't a whole lot of new Miracle Man for us to take a look at until Timeless released in December, January of 2021-2022. Now, this was a story by Jed McKay, and on the last page, there was an unbelievable reveal of Miracle Man. I couldn't be more excited. We, of course, talked about it. That was in Excess for Podcast 281 in January of 2022. We also had the opportunity to interview Jed McKay several months earlier in April of 2021 in one of our Countdown to the Hellfire Gala episodes, and that was an incredible experience. And you know, while it doesn't have anything Miracle Man related, it definitely is a view into the mind of a writer who would ultimately go on to interact with the character. And speaking of writers who would go on to interact with the character, Peach Momoko is joined by some unbelievable talent on Miracle Man, including Scotty Young, who is a cover artist extraordinaire, much like herself. And we had the opportunity to speak with Scotty Young back in February of 2021 uh, about a number of things, but things like Quest for Magic and Strange Academy. And that's definitely an interview you still want to check out, as well as our June 2021 interview with Mike Carey, who is a personal hero of mine. And I have cosplayed Felix Castor. So it was a pretty big, like, weepy deal for me. <laughs> 
And we did that in another countdown to the Hellfire Gala episode back in, like I said, June of 2021. It's not just Miracle Man that Peach Momoko has been working on these last few months that has really affected us. And like I said, during the later part of this episode, we're going to take a look at those two stories that we haven't seen yet from Demon Days, the prelude from King in Black number four and the Electra story from Black, White and Blood number four. But we've been spending so much fucking time on Electra this year. It's unbelievable. And for good reason. It's like the goddamn year of Electra. It's kind of hard not to notice from the interview that we've already discussed that she is Daredevil and running around with Matt Murdock in their own title. Now, we actually covered that in last week's episode where we took a look at Daredevil Volume 6, 1 through 3 that grew out of our coverage of Punisher, which grew out of our coverage of Devil's Reign, which grew out of our coverage of Electra. So jumping back, starting in January, we found ourselves taking a look at Devil's Reign X-Men, which intersected with Electra's story directly, putting Emma Frost and Electra on a collision course in their pasts. We did that in Excess for Podcast 285, 303, and 311 from January and March of 2022. We also had occasion to take a look at three of the most important works surrounding Electra. Electra Lives Again, Daredevil the Man Without Fear 1 through 5, and Daredevil Woman Without Fear 1 through 3. That was myself and TK back in March of this past year, 2022, and it was in episode 304. It was a really deep dive into those characters, and it led us on a journey where we continued to look at every page of Electra Black, White, and Blood. Now, granted, every page is this episode, but in episodes 301, 302, 310, 316, 321, and 339, we took a look at the first few issues of Electra Black, White, and Blood, finishing it off back in June with most of four powers you can't comprehend and rendezvous in episode 342. Of course, today we are going to finish that off. But we've also taken a look at some special stories like the one from Devil's Reign back in June and Electra 100 alongside the split story that was written by Anne Nascenti. It's a beautiful parallel piece telling an incredible tale between Electra and Typhoid Mary. What an unbelievable opportunity to take a brilliant set of female characters and put a, a, an incredible writer who, you know, is a woman who has shaped their destinies and giving her a chance to tell us how we didn't even know this major piece. What an incredible read. We've even seen Electra come up in our Parallel Universe read. On Mondays, TK and I have been taking a look at the MC2, and one of the things we've talked about is Wild Thing, the daughter of Wolverine and Electra. It's an unbelievable pair, but it makes for a phenomenal character. While it's not our favorite treatment of Electra over the years, it is definitely one worth talking about. It has been my incredible honor working with the X-Pac on all of this material, covering all of these stories. This grew out of such a simple idea of just wanting to talk about some 70s X-Men and now we find ourselves such a big family covering so much material and talking to heroes who make the books that really define our joy. The number of creators that have come back a number of times, whether it's Ariana Mar or Bob Quinn, we couldn't be more grateful than to continue sharing the microphone with you guys and for you guys giving us that time to come sit with us and talk. And to the fans, I we couldn't do this without retweets and good comments and good reviews and people DMing us and commenting on it's just been amazing and getting to share this all with you has meant the world and we really hope you guys enjoy what we do and we get to make for you every week coming up is going to be that coverage of Electra Assassin from Electra Black White and Blood number four and the prelude to Demon Days from King and Black number four 
As always, you can find the show at accessforpodcast.com and accessforpodcast on Twitter. We make the show for you three times a week, Mondays covering the MC2, though we're somewhere in the Spider-Verse now. I don't even know what to say. We just got to keep following Mayday. She's in the Spider-Verse, so we're in the Spider-Verse. It's a thing. It's happening. It's cool. Just keep swinging. On Mondays and Wednesdays, we cover more of those classic Marvel titles that you love that are coming out right now, like X-Men, Daredevil, the Judgment Day crossover, Demon Days, and more. If you want to know more about me and my original work, you can can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, or you can check out my comic at KidRiotComics.com and my work in the Young Men in Love anthology with some amazing talent. So, until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, enjoy this last segment. Remember, Miracle Man is still a-coming, like I said in January, oh, this is getting old. Enjoy this last segment, right? And we'll see you. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and you guys can check me out at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Hey everybody, it's Nathan again. You can find me at Dazzler AOA on Twitter. Dazzler AOA. And I'm TK. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX, and we hope you survive this experience, unlike poor Jaga. Uh heartbreak. Now, I am so excited to bring uh, another level to this episode. And like I said in that introduction, this is going to be more of that classic content you have come to expect. And I have to be honest, here's what happened. I really thought we covered these things at some point, And I'm looking through the analogs and the annals of our history. And no, uh, we have somehow managed to, in all of our coverage of Electra and in all of our coverage of the Demon Days universes, not yet covered the single story that crosses the two universes together from Electra Black, White, and Blood number four, which also makes it the only story from Electra Black, White, and Blood we haven't covered yet. And from there, I realized we never formally discussed the prelude to Demon Days originally contained in the okay of King in Black number four. And with a third Demon Days short coming up, just as we've discussed in the pages of Miracle Man Zero, there was no way we could let another minute of XI4P go by without dialing into these two stories. And so I want to take a big step back and start with what is everybody's initial relationship with the Demon Days narrative? going into this i literally covered now everything demon days on xi4p with these two things so coming in i am a full steam ahead fan loving every minute of it and while i have not covered i think any of it for x's for podcast i have read basically all of it i'm a huge fan if you'll recall nico when we were doing black white and blood we actually decided to leave that one to set that one aside for a special occasion and i don't think we had anything specific in mind but i think it was kind of fake that we would find a, a good time to include it and now is that time but that was actually really one of my earlier introductions to the Demon Days saga and was the thing that really prompted me to go back and read all of it. You know my relationship with Demon Days is really about the excitement of freedom. Something that we talk a lot on this show is how the iterations of character mean so much. It's something that we see in 
our work discussing current X-Men titles, where we're seeing characters reborn and characters get a new lease and the subtle ways that allows us to almost think of them as like era one, era two, sort of like the way DC has the Earths built in. We're sort of seeing a new age of that where there's just very disparate versions of characters like Black Tom, who we can no longer really reconcile with the nightmare of his 90s self. And while it's always amazing to be able to see it on that very textual level, there's that sort of metatextual level that's created by looking at an alternate universe, which is, I think, why things like Age of Apocalypse is in Nathan's Twitter username or MC2, which TK and I cover on Mondays. There's something about being able to see that alternate universe and the ways in which it's transformative that's so important. And I think Demon Days does that more holistically than anything we've seen at Marvel in a long time. I think it's really special because it has its own voice and its own style. And it's one of those things that you want to see more of, but specifically from the creator. This is not Age of Apocalypse became one of those things where I think we were all interested in just seeing such a stark alternative to the characters that we knew. And there have been a lot of creative forces to touch the Age of Apocalypse, some for better, some for worse. But I think for a lot of us, the interest is in just such a different reality to what we know. And we don't so much care about the specific creative team. We obviously want it to be a good one, but there's a lot of great ones. For the Momokoverse, there really is only one person that I think we're all interested seeing play in that sandbox. And it's just such a great vision of each of the characters. And it's not something that I'm interested in having like a really big interaction. Like, you know, I don't want, I don't need to see an incursion happen, but I love every time we get a new version of a character as styled by Peach Momoko. I don't think I would want to necessarily see the Momokoverse crossover with the mainstream Marvel Universe unless Peach was involved in writing the, the majority of it. And yes, I agree that the creators do matter in this instance. It was something Nico said reminded me. I've always loved alternate versions of the heroes we know and love. Like one of my first stories that I lucked into getting when I was a kid, like at a secondhand store, was Days of Future Past. And that just really opened my eyes up to like what the characters could be and who they were when you reimagine them. So like you're you're seeing like everything, even what Peach does is she's really she's staying true to you know the characters in a way, but also showing us a different twist on it. So I, I love the fact that looking at these people through a different eyes is going to bring a, a new set of understanding. And we definitely get to talk about eyes this episode, which is always yes. really exciting when you get super literal with it, right? <laughs> so I think that does bring me to one of the hallmarks of Demon Days that is the exploration of female characters who have long been seconded to male protagonists. Now we have Elektra and a unique take on Psylocke, which is a sort of hybridization of the two different identities that create the general cultural interpretation of the hybridized character of Betsy Braddock and Conan, where they were sort of Psylocke, sort of revanche, sort of really confusing, sort of maybe not a great idea, but ultimately <laughs> we have turned out all the better for it with two incredibly vibrant characters. And now this parallel third character, these women are so definitive in their strength, Electra, the White Queen, ultimately we'll get Storm and Black Widow. There are so few men in this story. And yet I would, I mean, first of all, if you told me this was going to be called like Super Marvel Bitch Glamazon Power Strikers, that would be the best book ever. And I would be here for it. But it doesn't present as such. It presents as this is a folk tale, but the inescapable draw of the magnetic power of these women is one of the things that makes this book 
really stand apart for me. And I know you're both such powerful fans of female characters, and I would love to get your guys' reaction to that Peach, Zach, Ariana, and Lindsay managed to tell these stories against conventional wisdom with a minority of men in the title. I mean, I think one of the things that is really interesting is that it's not just the female characters that are used, it's also the specific characters that are chosen. There's often a bent towards characters of color, characters that have relationships to Japanese culture or Asian culture kind of in a more broad sense, but under the pen of somebody who is able to write them in a way that feels a lot more authentic. Electra is somebody who's often referred to as a ninja. She works for the Hand, who are ninja, but Electra is a Greek woman, and her style is at one time, like, very Greek, like, especially when you get into, like, Electra with as much big brown hair as you can possibly put on screen in any given moment. But, you know, the way she dresses, I think, is something that we have all culturally come to associate with a certain idea of Japanese culture. Same thing with Psylocke. In these stories, we get a reinterpretation of those characters from somebody that comes from those cultures in a way that makes them feel a lot more, like, intentional and lived in and loved. And I think that it puts the characters in a light that is a little more... I feel more comfortable enjoying them. And, you know, by the flip side, when you take a character like Emma Frost, that you can take elements of Emma Frost and put them in a what is essentially, yeah, a Japanese folktale. I mean, I think we've seen a version of this in something like 1602 as well. Like, we all come from heritages in which there are stories that we can tell, that we can appropriate present-day Marvel characters and do really interesting things with them. And so I think not just the cultural impact of the characters, but the fact that we do have a real focus on women in this makes it something that is unique and really special. And I I love that you still get really fantastic versions of male characters too. Like in this case, Juggernaut, we've seen Logan as an actual wolf in this. Like we get really recognizable, beautiful versions of these characters, but we do see a lot of the protagonist and the antagonist and the point of view characters being primarily women. And it's just really enjoyable and unique. I love how this universe has primarily shown us women having relationships with women that aren't revolving around men. Like a lot of these characters, Electra has unfortunately, you know, been heavily associated with Daredevil and some of her stuff has been written with her as a tool through the eyes of Daredevil. Certainly Mariko has been that way with Logan. Psylocke herself, Psylocke, you know, whatever iteration has really been heavily associated a lot with her relationship with her brother, Brian. Emma oftentimes is, you know, viewed in fandom through her relationship with Scott. So it's really cool to see these characters have these relationships and they don't revolve around the men in their life. And it's sort of that whole conversation that we just had that makes me just maybe a little bit scratch my head at the location of the Marvel Universe debut of Demon Days. Now, I was lucky enough to be at a signing for the Young Men in Love anthology, and it was sort of magical coincidence that I was at a store called Eastside Mags, which actually contributor to the series Jake knows really well. Jake, you know, TK, I think you know Jake. A little bit. Right? (laughs) So I was at the store and somebody said, you know, if I'm buying this from you and I want you to sign it, tell me, what's the one thing you would tell me to buy off the shelf right now? And I was like, oh, Demon Days. And she was like, okay, great. I'll go buy it. And the store happened to have like all of these 
one shots, some printing of each of them. And she was like, this is so good. I need more. And I was like, you know what? I think there's only one other thing, the Electra Black, White and Blood story. And she was like, great, awesome. And she ordered a copy of the Marvel Treasury Edition. And I'm like, I sent that woman on her way into fandom armed with all of the truth that she'll ever fuck. It's in the King and Black book. What the <laughs> fuck is the prelude to Demon Days doing in King and Black number four? When I think null, I don't think strong women. Yeah, I, I don't think of null and think of strong anything positive, at least. <laughs> I mean, I really dipped out for King and Black. Like, I tend to be a slavish follower to crossovers, even when I don't necessarily care about what the other elements are in those crossovers, because inevitably there's like, I mean, like the cover for this one is primarily the X-Men, despite this being like a more Spider-Man Venom symbiote crossover event. But this was one where I really dipped out. So it was very odd to get the message that we would be covering this story. And the place that I would have to go find it was in a King and Black main book. But, you know, maybe that's a way to have drawn people like myself in who don't normally want to visit such a crossover event. There are worse ideas. As long as it gets eyes on the book, you exactly. know what I mean? Because it's not exactly like, hopefully, like Marvel's going to publish something it doesn't believe in. But, you know, so putting this with King and Black and, you know, King and Black ultimately was something Nathan and I finished off. You know, the team had sort of lost sight of the coverage of it with so many tie-ins happening. And it was a real pleasure to go back and take a look at that after the fact and see the impact it had on the Marvel Universe and recognize its positive qualities. And one more positive quality to praise then is this story from King and Black number four. This is the Demon Days Prelude, and it is by the standard creative team that we expect on a Demon Days story. The writing is Peach Momoko and Zach Davison. Peach covers all of the art, pencils, inks, and colors, where Ariana Mar comes in knocking the letters out of the park with editing by Lindsay Kohick. I just gotta be, Lindsay, if you're out, I'm sorry, uh, great Madam Editrix Kohick, if you're out there, we don't mean to keep saying you are not part of the creative team. If you want to come and tell us what's up about the creative process anytime you want, standing invitation, because this is a book that takes a smart, powerful editor bringing together the pieces. And that is a little bit sucking up. But uh, please, <laughs> by all means, this is a place where we really do care about the creative process. So it's always important to get those creative teams right and to include everyone. And this story sees the introduction of Logan, of Sai, of the Yuki Ona, Snow Witch, White Queen character. There's like a lot in this and yet it does feel like it feels like a prelude. Had you guys read this prior to reading Demon Days like I had or was this one you caught on the back end being like, oh, right, King in Black. That's where I look for my prelude to alternate universes designed by someone who hasn't traditionally worked on interiors at Marvel. Yeah, no, I mean, I really, I had not read this ahead of time. I really thought I had covered everything from Demon Days and, and exclusively because I was not paying attention to King and Black at the time and so was just would not have caught a story there and the way that I have gone about reading a lot of these Demon Day stories is just to you know pull what's published in things like you know in, in the main books and then in things like Electra Black White and Blood I've never gone back and been like okay what's the specific reading order which now I have to 
do to make sure I've really covered all my bases, but just not something I would have thought of. Obviously, I read this before I did the coverage for Demon Days 1, X-Men number one, but coming back to it now, it, it was nice and refreshing because that story and that saga has become something grand and amazing, but it was also cool to remember like the excitement of the origin of it. You know, like I, I just remember sitting there and thinking, who are these? Is that is that Psylocke? And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Wolverine, like Juggernaut, Emma Frost, like, you know, and just to see how these characters were that, you know, some don't reappear later. I, I can't stop thinking of how Logan is just Wolf Cub like now. Like, I can't get that out of my mind. One of the things that this introduction does for me, and especially rereading it after the fact, is it gives me a very, this could be any adventure that they face. And that's, I think, the magic of folklore and of folktale. There is a canosity to the Order of Demon Days, and it tells a very specific linear story. And for that reason, I'm so grateful for this opening salvo, the subtlety of these moments. There's power in the starkness of the color and the visual transition. There's a very clear balance to the work. And one of the things that really stands out is the lettering and the lettering placement. One of the delicate things that a page creates is a visual symmetry by creating defined breaks. The way the path worms down the top panel of the page and executes into what sort of pours into where Sai is sitting. We then have the symmetry of the lettering in the upper left and the lettering just to the right of it, allowing the bottom set of panels to tell a very visual animated story, especially with the color transitions and the use of white to create movement. I really felt like I was being swept into a watercolor world. It was very Mary Poppins being like, the kids are bored, Bert, what you gonna do? And Bert being like, I got sidewalk chalk. And I found myself really immersed in this world by color, such that on the second page, when the harshness of the red is introduced in Jaga, I am fascinated to think about how, oh, that's Juggernaut. Look at the red. It's a new idea. It's a new color. And the characters we're seeing are being represented through a symmetrical color theory. It's just a transformative opportunity to read into that process. And I think similarly, we get something from the White Queen character where it's a white that is reflecting a lot of the cool colors that are coming off of the Psylocke character. And it's, again, you it's that moment of interaction between the woman protagonist and the woman antagonist that the male characters are almost accessory to that and set dressing in a way that is, it's not demeaning to them, but it is saying like the real battle is happening over here between these two people, one of whom is Crystal that is reflecting the other one. And what we get from Logan and from Jaga is something that's a lot more like eye-popping and interesting, but not right where our focus is meant to go and where we're meant to kind of deeply penetrate the interaction. Really interesting to look at the coloring of Emma Frost's look in this, especially when you look at it under that gaze. At first you're like, oh wait, why is she green? But then you're then you're realizing she's reflecting everything around her. It's it's really beautiful to see how well thought out that is in the whole layout of the series. To like juxtapose the beauty of that in her form on the page where she says, Jaga, you know, and you just see the blood splatter right in front of her. So like just like the horror with mixed with the beauty. There's something special about that. And you know, I was actually gonna comment on the fact that the Emma Frost reflecting the colors and sort of a, a little bit of a thought on the fact that there are many cultures which see green and blue as aspects of the same color and I very much do see Emma Frost as a character who can 
can be shown in Sheens of Blue. And one of my favorite things is to point out that diamonds have facets and you can catch different colors in their different eyes. And I also took it as not just a reflection, which I love that read and it really helps add another layer. I also saw it as sort of the different facets of who she is, this complicated psychic weaving these elements, you know, sort of in her own way, not that she's the direct copy of the character. It's just a tremendous thing that the creative team is able to execute down to where further down the page from what you said, Nathan, the, you know, the starkness of her Jaga, the we'll see, that transformative lettering where, you know, Ariana Mar, such a, a master of subtlety and nuance, she is able to convey why that looks that way just by doing it. And then in subsequent issues, because we know that lettering has sort of a guide to it, it's a language, right? We know then that the consistency indicates that it's the same thing later on. It's a subtle, light way to introduce something in an earlier issue that transforms your reread later on. And I just think letters in a book like this, giving room for the art to be so big and the words to be so tight, it's a really eloquent technique that shows off by being less is more. Again, it's such a beautiful introduction to Demon Days X-Men because we do get to see a good introduction to the side character before she meets the Mirage character before it transforms into the Mariko saga. Every stop that we've made kind of lets us see more into these characters, their heart, their intentions. So it was really fun to remember that this was our introduction to the Momoko verse in the first place. Fuck if I don't love that look of Psy in profile staring into the beautiful colorscape on that final page. There is a sort of language of color that we're able to direct by showing depth, hue, value, and by mixing those colors here for the first time, instead of the very clear delineation of color in line, we're able to see a future, a transformative quality to the idea that it's all of those colors in the sky. And it also is so funny that Sai is the main character of the first Demon Days short story when Electra is the main character of the one we're going to discuss next, Assassin, a Demon Days tale by Peach Momoko. The reason this is so interesting is because if the whole world only knew how many actual Psylocke action figures were just repaints of an Electra and no vice versa, I, I think the number would just, it's sort of the, if God can make anything, could he make a sandwich that even God couldn't eat? You know, it's that whole Victor Mancha problem, you know? <laughs> so the three of us have had an opportunity to talk extensively about Electra, and I recently had an opportunity to reflect on the fact that we've done like 15 episodes dealing with this character in the last year, and that is so powerful to me because I've long said that like Electra is my pinnacle character. I think Jean Grey is overused when she's alive, and I think Electra is overused when she's dead, and it's a really interesting parallel for the two characters, and this is the first time since like like legitimately the 70s and 80s where they're both at incredible periods of high power together where one of them isn't a scroll or clone of some kind so i'm really excited to talk about a new interpretation of a character that i often say is best kept in secret but my question for you guys because there's so many versions of her who is your electra is she you know because you know tk when you were saying what you were saying about electra earlier my first thought is oh my god he's so right if Daredevil and Elektra was a show on the CW, she would be played by somebody doing a bad Lady Gaga in House of Versace sort of impression. It would be terrible. I think my Elektra is a super fashionable assassin. 
I don't know what that even means, but like she's here to kill you with killer looks. And I think that that's part of what this story really tapped into for me. Like the idea of who is Electra? Who is Electra for you guys? Mine is the oddest Electra out there. Mine is a, a nanny to Alex Summers' kids. <laughs> but I loved Mutant X in my defense. That was a good book. My joke is always that it's Jennifer Garner in the Daredevil and Electra movies. And like in some ways, it's like not a joke because that is just the one that I had the most familiarity with for a long time. But since we've been doing this Electra work, I think it really has become Anne Nascenti's Electra from the Black, White, and Blood story and then Electra 100. Also pulling in Jerry Duggan's Electra from Devil's Reign. This character that is plausibly involved in the lives of a lot of members of the Marvel Universe and who are women especially in a way that doesn't really have anything to do with Matt and is very much her own thing. I think it very much helps that the big introductory Daredevil story that I started with when I went on this journey to get more into Daredevil Electra was Man Without Fear in which her vibe is very much like, I know this is Matt's book, but I actually have my own shit going on that you're not seeing that's actually probably a lot more interesting. The stylized version of her where her Greek identity sort of subsumes the I am associated with ninja identity, I think is something that's really important when most people are writing, designing, and using the character. I think you're absolutely right that if we saw a version of her today in like a CW show, and I think this kind of applies to the Netflix version, the red is enough. If we get Electra in red, it really doesn't need to be a costume where you say to yourself, hmm, that's a person that was taught by ninjas. Like, as long as there is red, you've kind of got what you need from Electra. But again, like, the reason why this story is particularly special is because for decades, Electra did have this association with a very nebulously American idea of a Japanese style, and that's very difficult to separate from the character at this point. But the only way that I feel like we can really appreciate the reality of that is to have a Japanese artist come in and put their own spin on that style. And I think that's what we get here in a way that's really perfect. Electra's one of those characters that's so identified by her look, and I think that's why so many of us have so many different versions of her that we love. Oftentimes, she's been written not by a continuous writer after, you know, the original Daredevil run, so she's jumped around from writer to writer, so she hasn't had as much of a particular voice. So I think people are able to gravitate towards those versions of the characters, you know, just enjoy them all. And speaking of enjoying them all, I feel like at some point in the pages of Assassin, A Demon Day's Tale, as opposed to Electra Assassin. I just want to be clear. If Peach Momoko wants to go and be like, I have a new take on Electra Assassin. Let's do Electra Assassin too. I'm there, right? But, you know, this is Assassin, a Demon Day's Tale of Electra, And it is a silent story. And one of the things that catches my eye is that it's credited to just Peach Momoko. And in the story, there is a long caption that begins the first panel, which says in feudal Japan, wandering samurai roam the land in search of coin and a bed for the night. Sometimes they cross paths with 
strange and supernatural beings. And the story has such an incredible eloquence to it. These soldiers, these men, are marching along and they come into contact with a strange and mystical being, Electra. But Electra then using the demon things that she's fought as currency in that way, she came across something supernatural in the night. She's now selling these eyeballs at market and then finds that she's come across another supernatural being in the fucking night. The layers of revelation in this story for me, this very silent story, speak to the heart of the greatest Electra stories, which communicates so much by showing her so little. How did you guys feel about this Nuff Said style issue that told a story visually only? I really loved it. It was refreshing and it was it was really nice to see uh, the, the more Peach uses the layout format, the, the more she grows and the stronger she gets with her storytelling. It was just so amazing to see it so well told that I could, I could literally caption each panel without having to see the words for it. I think it also speaks to an idea of Electra. We're getting a very new conception of Electra as a hero and as a version of Daredevil. We've had a version of Electra that is the daughter of the hand that is very much like their messiah and scion and the one that they can constantly use as a weapon. But in between those two things, she often has a assassin for hire, you know, as somebody who is the daughter of wealth, there is a degree to which I think we often see her maintaining a lifestyle and, you know, being an anti-hero kind of villain, maybe a hero as a job, not as a calling. And this version of her in the Demon Day story really speaks to where I think we find her a lot of the time when she is not a weapon against Matt or being, you know, Matt's partner. For the most part, other than that, it's that same thing where she's like, I actually have my own stuff going on and it's like usually a job for me. Like I, I don't have the same attachment to this world that a lot of you do. And I think this is the Momokaverse version of that. But it really is, I think, a conception of the character that is pretty accurate to how we get her a majority of the time in the main Marvel Universe. So that was the thing that was kind of exciting to me about it was just like, oh, this is like pretty recognizably like if we're talking about putting this in a black, white and blood story, which like regardless of continuity is about what is at the core of Electra. This pretty much taps into what is at the core of Electra just in a universe and in a story format format that's kind of uniquely Peach Momoko, which is exactly what you would want from. And I'm just sort of charmed by a major realization that this Electra story conveys to me. There is a timelessness to Electra that has an authenticity to it in the pages of the Marvel Universe. As long as somebody isn't, you know, trying to work too hard to bring her to life using Echo's playground scene, yeah, we caught it. You know, you get a really good sense of her. And this is certainly not a knock against the creators that have worked on Psylocke in the past. But this was perhaps the first time that I felt that Psylocke carried the same kind of cool, inimitably, that Electra does. You can tell me Electra's a lot of things, but you cannot tell me she's insecure. She's too confident. She may be insecure that she's not too confident enough. But I think Psylocke drips with an unmissable, almost le- immature level of self-doubt that until these new iterations of these characters reworked under the incredible pens of Zeb Wells and Teeny Howard, just to name two, I don't know that Psylocke had that same cool till now. 
now. And I think Peach Momoko really tapped into that right away in the first story. I agree. And I think a lot of it has to do with keeping the story itself as simple as it is, dispensing with a lot of dialogue, trusting in the visuals and your idea of what the story is in terms of structure and format, letting that do a lot of the work. I think, you know, obviously I I wouldn't read the number of comics I do if I didn't love the way we do it now, but I think there is a value, especially in characters that have complicated backstories, not just for lore reasons, but because, you know, they've come through many decades in which we've come to better understand things like cultural appropriation. I think sometimes when we take a step back and distill things to really fundamental elements, we still get the opportunity to do gorgeous detail work, but maybe sometimes when we hang up a lot of that present continuity and dialogue and relatability in favor of doing something that is just very stark and simple and in some ways minimal, it gives us a chance to get at the core of who a character is in a way that sometimes I just think we kind of need. A lot of the problem with Psylocke now is because there was a lot of complicated cultural ickiness, like they, they stuck a white British woman in a Japanese woman's body. So it, it's while her look is iconic and she will always be a prominent figure in the X-Men, it's, it's hard for her to be used in a way that is anywhere near as cool as Electra. This is where I'm so excited about this bold new future because guys, in what we've talked about in the course of this episode, Peach Momoko has worked on a character created by Chris Claremont in Betsy and also Psylocke. He wasn't responsible for the Conan mess, but it's fine. And Emma. Oh, and Emma. Excellent point. Yeah. She worked on a character created by Frank Miller in Electra, and we know that she's going to be working on a character defined by Alan Moore in the pages of Miracle Man Zero. This is a woman of another culture helping to redefine American comics, and it makes me ask, who would you guys most want to see Peach Momoko redefine next? For me, only one name comes to mind. Erica Fortune. (laughs) Snarf. Snarf. Um, I would honestly love to see Peach's take on, you know, some of my favorite characters like Dazzler or Lila Cheney, you know, just to see how she would incorporate their musical styles. That would be really amazing to see. Gosh, I'd love to see her take on, you know, some characters that I'm not sure that we've seen yet in Demon Wars, but we don't because we don't know 100% for sure. But like, I, I'd love to see like, you know, Jan Dine. I'd love to see a Momokoverse, a version of Monica Rambeau, stuff like that. Probably the summer children probably Rachel and Nate okay yeah I resonate with that and you know if I had to give a real answer just because I I did give a ridiculous answer but if I did have to give a real answer probably Mr. Sinister Mm -hmm. I really think a Momoko versus Mr. Sinister would make me uh, would make my nightmares shit themselves yeah Yeah. so I mean because that look is kind of Kabuki-esque in the worst possible way absolutely like he watched all the wrong YouTube tutorials (laughs) a little bit Judas Priest it was a little bit divine and it was a whole lot of Tammy Faye Baker. So I do continue to be amazed at the use of uh, elements that we would consider horror in Peach's comics and comics that we generally think of as is very beautiful and beautifully done and beautifully landscaped. But she also is able to bring in those terrifying horror, horror elements into her book and amplify them without having them overtake them. Yeah, I don't think I have a ton more to add. I, I really am 
excited to see what comes next. And what strikes me about this is what I said from the beginning, which is that this is kind of a universe unto itself in which a very talented, controlled creator has the ability to put their specific spin on a lot of characters that we know and love in a way that I'm not super interested in how that can cross over with mainstream continuity, but I am really interested in the ways that it can reflect what we know about characters in that way that, you know, seeing this version of Electra says a lot about what the core of Electra is. I would love to keep just going through characters like that. And, you know, I kind of thought we got something similar with 1602, but then unfortunately it was just too good a property to leave on the table for Marvel and too obviously like something that because a lot of us have European heritages in which, you know, that those kinds of folk stories are recognizable for a lot of people and speak to a lot of people's backgrounds. It's much more accessible to a lot of writers and artists. This, I think, is a really not unique situation because obviously there are other Japanese artists that could speak to this as well. But I think Peach Momoko is uniquely placed to do this work and I hope it stays in her court primarily. And I would just love to keep exploring characters in ways that help me better understand them through stories like Demon Days. As a reminder, Marvel 1602 only exists to help bring Miracle Man over to Marvel. So the number of parallel full circles we're hitting on this episode. And yeah, you know, my final words really are Demon Day Spellbound. Enough said. Enough said. Yes. Yeah.